We ask that you would do that. We ask that you would care for Redeemer and the people here. That you would help us to do that for one another. You would help us to bear one another's burdens. Uh, you would help us to believe and take on the burden that is light, the yoke that is easy. Father, thank you that you welcome us to come to you with our wants, our desires, our struggles, our needs. Help us to do that more often. Help us to do that better, more consistently and quicker. And I just pray that, that you would meet us this morning, that you would care for us, that we would experience uh, the joy and the warmth of your embrace. That we would know what it's like as prodigals coming back to experience a father who runs out and clothes us with your robe and throws a party. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the great theologian uh, Homer Simpson, <laughs> after reading the Bible in one of the episodes, disappointingly says, everyone's a sinner in here except for this one guy. Someone else said, the problem with your Bible is that all your good guys are bad guys. There are no heroes. While David has not been sinless, he has been quite heroic up to this point in our series, hasn't he? Well, uh, however, the heroic image of him comes to a crashing halt in the, pa halt in the passage and events that we will look at this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 11 contains one of the top two stories that David is most known for and associated with. The first story we've already looked at, right? David and Goliath. But the second story that we're going to look at this morning is the story of David and Bathsheba. These two stories could not be on farther end of the moral spectrum from one another. And they are both true stories about a real man. A real man who was capable of doing some of the most heroic feats, while also, at the same time, being capable of committing some of the most heinous sins. How is that possible? How is it possible for him to be someone who can do some of the most heroic, faithful feats and some of the worst, heinous sins? How can David be such a great man such a great king compared especially to Saul and then go and do something so awful such as adultery and murder. David is God's chosen anointed king for Israel and yet this is what he does. How could God allow David to fall in this way? Why would he allow this to be included in the Bible? I mean the truth is if you take out this chapter, chapter 11, from David's life, then he's looking pretty good. But it's not taken out. It's here. So we have to deal with it. We have to address and wrestle with how such an amazing, chosen man of God could, could, could do and commit such awful and damaging sin. Does your understanding of the human heart have a category for David to fall in such a dramatic way? Does your theology have a category for your spiritual heroes and mentors to also have great sin in their life? Does your understanding of your own heart 
have a category for you to do the things that David does in this chapter. Are you shocked and perplexed by David's great sin? Are you sometimes shocked and perplexed by your own sin? The story of David and Bathsheba serves as both a warning and a mirror for us this morning. So if you can or able, please stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 11. We'll read verses 1 through 5, 14 through 17, and then 26 through 27. In the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, which I guess there's a season of battle, this tends to be spring, uh, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Amorites and besieged Rabbah, and da but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David, oh, sorry, jump down to verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the, in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieged, besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were a valiant man. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of, da of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Now jump down to verse 26. When the, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. All right, go and grab your seat. Before we pray, a little pastoral caveat aside, this is kind of part one of a two-part series-ish, because we're not covering Nathan yet, and we'll do that next time, which means this is a hard, as a pastor, it's a hard um, sermon and text to preach on. You know, we talk about being about good news, but there's not a lot of good news in this passage. And so this is going to feel maybe a little bit weightier. Um, than some of the other sermons and texts. And it's hard to kind of try to be faithful to the text and try to stick in it and try not to relieve attention. I hope it get a little bit of relief, but it's sermons and texts like this that I'm thankful for our order of service uh, where you got the gospel already given with Andy leading us and you're going to get the gospel of communion. So just a little heads up, this is not going to be as relieving uh, and as hopeful as I tend to want to give, it's going to be hard. And the truth is, I'm still learning how to preach this kind of stuff. And so it's hard for me to do that. But just a little heads up. So let's pray and ask that God would still use his word uh, as he promises to do. Father, we ask for your mercy this morning through your word that you would minister to our hearts. That you would meet us where we 
that you would speak powerfully to us and that we would know uh, and be convinced of the reality of what you're trying to show us through this story, these events. I pray that you would open up the eyes of our hearts. We can't work up faith. We can't work up worship. But you promised through your word that it will not come back empty-handed. That it will not come back until it is done what it is meant to do, which is change us. And so we ask that you would use even this text, even this hard story, to transform us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, with this being such a popular story in the Bible, chances are that if you have been in the church, you might have heard a few teachings, sermons, or read books on the story. I've heard people uh, approach this as a lesson on the need for women to be modest and where Bathsheba went wrong and somehow tempting David. And can I just tell you from the get-go that there is nothing, I mean nothing that hints at her being the issue in this text. There's nothing that hints at that. She is not the focus in this chapter at all. Actually, she only gets her name called out one time, Bathsheba, once. It happens when, um, when the servant's relaying to David who she is. And the follow-up, even when her name is given, is that she is the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. As if the messenger is trying to speak sense into David, saying, listen, she's a daughter. David, she's a wife of someone else. She's not an object for your pleasure, but it doesn't work. He's already too far gone to listen. In fact, even when she gets referred to in the New Testament for Jesus' genealogy, she is still called the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, there are certainly places in the Bible that speak to a woman's call to modesty, but let me be clear, this is not one of them. So if you have heard that, it's wrong. That's not what this passage is about. I've also heard sermons and teachings about this being a warning to us of how power can corrupt us. That we must be wary of getting any kind of power or authority because that's where things start to go wrong for David here. And while there are plenty of elements in this story of how power is abused by David in order to sin and in his attempts to cover his sin, I am not convinced that that is the main point of this text either. I've also heard people use this text uh, to teach on the dangers and destruction of sexual sin outside of marriage, outside the confines of covenant of marriage. That's not the point either. <laughs> there are elements here. I have people teach about how being idle or even retiring is a real warning here, that we should be mindful about the temptations that come along with doing, with retiring and being idle, because then we become really vulnerable to sin, as if we weren't vulnerable before. And while some of these aspects are present in the story, none of them are the main point of the text. None of them are the main point of this story. I don't believe any of them are the main reason why God has this story in the Bible. I believe the main point of our text, our chapter and story this morning, it's simple. It's this. If David can fall, anyone can fall. <laughs> I thought for sure this wasn't going to be an emotional sermon. 
We are all prone and capable of sinning in big ways. The web of sin that David weaves in this chapter is overwhelming. He breaks half the commandments here. And what is so disturbing about this story is that this doesn't happen before David knew God. That it doesn't happen when David was a new follower of God. David does not commit these awful sins as some unwise hormonal teenager. He is a mature, seasoned believer when all of this takes place. Remember, David as a teenager was the only one who trusted God enough to face the giant enemy that was facing Israel at the time. David is the chosen and anointed king of God. For God's people, we are told that he was a man after God's own heart. He lived on the run in the wilderness for 10 years from Saul. And when he had the chance to take matters into his own hands, in his suffering of fleeing in the wilderness and ending Saul's life, rather than doing that, he trusted God's plan and timing instead. He is the man who just, we just looked at last week, that he showed God's Chesed love to Mephibosheth, his natural enemy, by treating him as his own son. David is also the one who wrote so many of the psalms, the beautiful poetic songs that help lead us into worship. He wrote Psalm 40, verse 8, that says, I delight to do your will, O oh my God, your laws within my heart. It is this man who commits these heinous sins of adultery and murder. And it's worse than it looks at first glance. See, Bathsheba is the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah. These are two of the guys that make up what the Bible calls David's mighty men. The mighty men were a group of guys who were faithfully with David in the wilderness while he was fleeing for his life from Saul. These were the group of men who risked their lives every single day in order to make sure that they saved David's. David does these awful sins against men that he basically owes his life to. We get a sense of how faithful these men were from Uriah's actions in this story. When David learned that Bathsheba is pregnant after he slept with her, he comes up with a plan to try and cover it up. He brings Uriah back from war, the war that David himself should have been at, but he stayed back. He brings Uriah back with the idea that when he comes back, Uriah certainly will go to his house, will sleep with his wife, and then everyone will conclude that this baby is Uriah's, and all is now taken care of. But that plan doesn't work, because even when David intentionally gets Uriah drunk, Uriah still won't go down to his house because Uriah is so faithful to David and the other soldiers that he refuses to go home to be with his wife and sleep in his bed while the other soldiers are still away from their home, from their family, and while they're still fighting. Then to make matters worse, when that plan fails, David uses Uriah's trustworthiness against him because plan B is to have Uriah carry a letter of his own death warrant to Joab, to Joab, the leader of the army, 
because he knew, David knew, that Uriah would never dare distrust David and look to see what the letter says. The plan is to have Uriah fight on the front line and then have the rest of the soldiers, while they're fighting, withdraw, leaving Uriah as good as dead. How in the world could David do these terrible things? The answer, I think, is simple and terrifying. David was capable of sinning in these ways for the same reason that you and I sin in every way. He's capable of sinning in these ways for the same reason that you and I are capable of doing any and every sin. It's because we all have the seeds of every sin inside of our hearts. There wasn't something outside like power or authority or temptation that made him sin. It was because what's already in his heart, the seeds of sin that were already in his heart that caused him to do this. David didn't wake up and say, today, I think I'm going to be an adulterer. Today, I think I'll be a murderer. It started small. It started subtle. Verse 1 tells us that David was not at battle with his people like he usually was, like he should have been. He stayed back in Jerusalem. Why he did that, we're not told, but it's, it's easy to think of some reasons why he might have done this, isn't it? I mean, David had been through a lot. He had fought many battles, been faithful to God from the time he was a young shepherd boy to now as a mature king. He moved the Ark of the Covenant to the capital of Israel, making the worship of God the center of Israel, of this nation. Perhaps he thought, I deserve to sit this one out. It's time to take care of me and stop doing for everyone else. People don't really understand the pressure I'm under as a king. They don't know what it's like to have your life sought after. Always looking over his shoulder. Who knows what he thought, but it's, it's not hard to imagine something along these lines might have been going through his head. This sense of entitlement, this sense of I deserve this. A very subtle, almost justifiable desire. And then one day, while all the able men were in battle, he was strolling along his roof that overlooked all the city, and he sees a woman, a beautiful woman, ironically obeying the law of cleanliness. And then it's all over after that, right? You know what's interesting is that the way the author writes this chapter tells us a lot about what's happening or not happening in David's heart. The way the author writes this chapter actually informs us about some of the DNA and the effects of sin. Many commentators point out that there are no feelings of the characters described in this chapter. Did you notice that? No one's feelings are put in this chapter. All that is given are facts. The facts of what happened. This happened. He did this. She did this. That's it. It's all action. One commentator writes, the action is quick. The verbs rush as the passion of David rushed. He sent, he took, he lay, all found in verse 4. The royal deed of self-indulgence does not take very long. There is no adornment to the action. The woman gets some verbs too. She returned, she conceived. The action is stark. There is nothing but action. There is no conversation, there is no hint of caring 
of affection, of love, only lust. David does not call her by name. He does not even speak to her. And at the end of the encounter, she is only the woman at verse 5. End quote. There is a coldness. There is a numbness that happens when sin enters your life and your heart. There is a spiral and a deepening that happens with sin. There is a blindness, a deceitfulness that's in the DNA of sin that happens within your heart. What is interesting is that David, throughout the entire chapter, seemed to be in complete control. Throughout the entire chapter, he seemed to be in control, right? He directs and he sends people here and there. Everyone is obeying his orders and doing what he wants, and he seems to get whatever he wants. It gives a sense of control that David has over everybody in every circumstance, and yet, while he controls others, his own heart is completely out of control and disconnected from others. Eugene Peterson writes, and this context, the verb to send is not a morally neutral word at all. It signals the impersonal exercise of power. By following the use of this verb, we can trace David's descent from love and obedience into calculation and cruelty. Verb by verb, we watch David remove himself from compassionate listening and personal intimacy with others to a position outside and above others, giving orders and exercising power in David does not seek to simply have you, or sorry, sin does not seek to simply have you do something bad in one little moment. That's not the goal ultimately of sin. It is seeking to cause you to go deeper and deeper into it without you ever really knowing that's what you're doing. David never thought staying back from battle would cause him to spiral down in such a dramatic way. But that is what sin is so good at. Presenting to you something that seems justifiable, not all that bad, even right at the time, only to leave you looking back and wondering, how did I get here? Again, Eugene Peterson writes, the deceitfulness and subtlety of sin is such that it doesn't feel like sin when we're doing it. It feels godlike. It feels religious. It feels fulfilling and satisfying. David did not feel like a sinner when he sent for Bathsheba. He felt like a lover. He didn't feel like a murderer when he sent the letter to Joab to have Uriah killed. He felt like a king giving orders, end quote. Sin is so good at blinding us to ourselves. It is so good at helping us create justified reasons why we are doing what we are doing. And why what we are doing is not all that bad. We play this game, don't we? And let's just be honest. We play this game of weighing all the good that we have done. All the things that we are faithful and obedient in with God. That nobody really knows about. And we justify it to ourselves. Because then we reason that we are mostly doing the right thing. And, but this little one thing that we want to do is not that big of a deal. And then what we do also is we look to others. We look to others and what they're doing and what they have done. We look to the big and public sins. And we think we aren't nearly as bad as so-and-so. They are the real sinners. They are the people, they are the ones people should be worried about. 
all to justify why the faith that we're sinning the way that we are. You listen to David's justification that comes in verse 25 after the death of Uriah. David said to the messenger, thus shall you say, Thus shall you say to Joab, he's trying to comfort Joab, who delivered the orders of his letter to kill Uriah. Do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. Do you hear the deceitfulness, the justification that David's giving? He says basically, don't worry about it. People die by the sword all the time. That is the business of being a soldier in battle. We all know the danger. We all know the potential. Don't let your heart be troubled by Uriah's death. Someone else will die by the sword tomorrow. It happens. You hear the justification behind that. Don't you see this is a mirror into what all of our hearts are like? This is not a passage about modesty. It's not a passage about the abuse of power, the danger of lying, the destruction of sex outside marriage. It is a passage, a warning about the dangers of sin that reside in your heart right now. The reign and the power of sin has been broken, praise God, for Christians. But while sin no longer reigns in our heart, it does remain in our hearts still. And the point is that if David is capable of such a sin, the point of this entire passage, if he's capable of this, then so are you. Then so are you. You and I are not better than David. This passage is meant to awaken us to the daily battle that happens within our hearts. That is where the real danger lies. It's not out there. It's not with the people and things out there. It's within our own hearts. The sin that we don't think is that bad, that harmful, that destruction is the places often that we have the most dangerous sin. If you have a sense in your heart of hearts that says, but I could never, but I could never, that stance is your first step towards a deep, destructive fall. You should not be shocked or surprised at what you or others are capable of is the point of this passage. All of us have the ability and capability to do this. David thought he got away with it too. David did a good job covering up and he thought he got away with it. He thought he was in control of it because God actually is silent in our whole chapter. God doesn't show up once in our whole chapter except for the very end, except for the last part of the last verse, where it says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Actually, verses 25 and 27 are connected intimately. We have a poor translation that doesn't show us how in Hebrew they're connected, because the literal translation of verse 25 says, David says to Joab, don't let this thing be evil in your eyes. And then verse 27 literally says, the thing that David had done was evil in Yahweh's eyes. David, the man after God's own heart, sinned in such a way that he calls what is evil actually good. That's how sin blinds us. 
And the point of this passage is meant to awaken us this morning to the reality and capability of the sin in our hearts. There are people here this morning who are hiding in sin right now. There are people who think they have gotten away with it like David did. But the last part of the last verse reminds us that there's no such thing. There's no such thing as getting away with it. Because God sees it. God sees the evil in our hearts. He sees the sins that we do. God knows and sees all. And that fact, that truth, is not meant to scare or intimidate you to come into the light. Rather, it is an invitation of kindness from God. To bring to the light what he already sees. What he already knows about. Next week when we look at David and Nathan. uh, We will see more. Of why we can bring our sin into the light. We'll see more of what happens. When we bring our sin into the light. What God does to help us bring our sin into the light. But this morning is meant to be a wake up call. This morning is meant to be a reminder. That we should not be shocked. By the sin of others. Even our spiritual heroes. It's meant to be a reminder and a wake-up call for us this morning that we are capable of every sin but for the grace of God. One of the ways that we battle against sin is by repenting of it. That's one of the ways that we are meant to bring it into the light is by acknowledging all the ways that we have sinned, especially or even the ways that we seek to justify our sins. And the reason why we can so honestly do that is not just because we know that God sees it, but because we know in seeing it that rather than condemn and punish us as he should, God sends the true king, the one who, <laughs> the one who is the seed of the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. God's look of condemnation and punishment for the, your worst sin. For the worst sin that you have ever or will ever commit. Was poured out on Jesus. His look of condemnation and punishment for your worst sin was poured out on Jesus. So that now your worst sin is covered by the perfect record of the only one in the Bible who never sinned. We're going to look more at that next week, but I, I couldn't not say that. I couldn't just leave it. Because the call now is a wake-up call, but the way that we fight the reality of the seed and the capability of our heart is an awareness by repenting, making repentance a daily thing, a normal thing. I think that we do more often because this morning I want you to know that you can bring your sin into the light of repentance and receive God's look of favor because Jesus endured the darkness and the look of condemnation that your and my sin deserves. Amen.